Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, The Royal Flush Edition. My name is Stuart Thompson and I'm here in the Journal Newsroom studio on Friday, January 29th. We're taping a little later today because we just learned the details of the government's new energy royalty framework. That sound you heard at about 11.15 Mountain Time was the energy industry breathing a big sigh of relief as the government decided to mostly leave oil sands royalties alone. The headline? No change to royalties on existing wells for 10 years. There's a lot of royalty talk to go around, so we're going to be a single-issue podcast today. As always in the press gallery, we promised not to present any additional challenges to the industry. <laughs> Here in the studio, taking time out from a busy workday, we have politics reporter Jody Cinema. Hello. City columnist Paula Simons. Hello, Stuart. And business columnist Gary Lamphier. Howdy. Thanks for coming in, guys. First, we'll get to the details on what the Premier said today and how the opposition is reacting. Jody, can you tell us what we learned about the new framework this morning? In general, uh, we learned that there weren't a lot of changes. So as far as a new framework is concerned, yes, they're saying this is a new framework that is more dynamic and uh, better for the industry. But basically, surprisingly to a lot of people, it's the status quo. So in terms of royalty uh, royalties that the Alberta government will take in from oil and gas, we won't be seeing any more money coming to Alberta coffers for sure for the next two years, and it might slowly ramp up after that. But in terms of royalty rates, there are no changes for the oil sands industry, none whatsoever. And in terms of royalty changes for drilling for oil and gas, uh, all drill all the wells that are already drilled, the royalty rates stay exactly the same. So they keep going on, they keep taking the money in. So after 2017, new royalty rates will come in for, for new wells. The thing is, we don't know what those rates are yet. The government hasn't released those. And for those wells that are already out there, too, the, the ones that have already been built, for the next 10 years, they're guaranteed to have the same royalty rates. So really, we have the same royalty rates out there. But as Dave Mowat, the head of the review panel, said, he said, this is less about royalty rates and more about the royalty framework. That's how he said. He said, we've been focusing too much on the money or on the rates themselves and not enough about the overall framework. That's how he sold it. Uh, it is interesting in the quotes, um, and this is a quote from Annette Trimby, the president and vice chancellor of the University of Winnipeg, who sat on the panel. She says... The royalty framework for oil and gas has not kept up with the times. If it hasn't kept up with the times, why were there not more changes? Uh, and I think there was a real surprise, at least in the in the room of reporters where I was at, who covered the royalty review back in 2007. They were expecting some movement. So not potentially more royalty rates coming in now, not more money now with the oil prices dipping below $30. But what happens when or if those rates go up. What happens if we reach $80 a barrel? What happens if we reach $100 a barrel? Should we have seen a sliding scale? Well, the government totally changed its mind from being the NDP opposition. They come into government and they say, no, we're, we're, we're keeping the rates the same they are. It was, I think, a real shock to everyone to see how how much stasis was going to be in the system. There are a few like really small little changes. One of them, for example, is that if you if you set out drilling and you were looking for hydrocarbon A and you actually hit hydrocarbon B, it used to be that there were different royalty rates for natural gas, for oil. So they're saying now that the rates will be um, sort of... Harmonized. And they're harmonized. Yeah. Be, there's three different kinds of 
hydrocarbons are all going to be harmonized so that if you accidentally drill and get a different kind of hydrocarbon, it's not going to necessarily impact what you have to Yeah, pay. so they're, kind of, they're saying that it's an agnostic system so that if you hit natural gas when you were looking for oil, if you hit, you know, uh, if you hit methane when you were looking for something else, so you're not going to be penalized for that. So in some ways, uh, the industry seems cautiously happy. Now, there may be some rumblings and some blowbacks from NDP um, true believers who, you know, remember all of the rhetoric about fire sale prices and wanting to get our fair share. And you can see a certain kind of uh, bulking from Rachel Notley's base, people who were told that we were getting shafted and that this was going to give us justice. Uh, on the other hand, I think the countervail is that all of the people who were waiting to pounce on her now kind of had the rug pulled out from under them. So you sort of had this sort of like this built-up tidal wave of rage, you know, Team Angry was all set to go. And then they, I think, felt a little bit deflated when they saw the results. So, you know, for her, it's kind of a political saw-off. I think she has disappointed some in her base camp. But I think politically, the, 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 the balancing act that she struck will be more in Rachel Notley's favor than not. You talk about a balancing act and about, you know, she softened all the critics. But it's very interesting if you look back on quotes from Brian Mason and from Rachel Notley back in 2007. But as recently as eight months ago when they were in the election campaign, they were saying we weren't getting our fair share. There was all sorts of problems with the royalty regime that we had at that time. Eight months later, and she's totally flipped. And it is as Graham Thompson has said, it's very hypocritical. When they were the NDP in the opposition, they wanted rates to go higher. Now that they're government, they've totally turned. It's a 180. Um, and it sort of points to politics. Is this how politics works? You get into government and you get into power and you completely flip. Well, I was curious, how will the opposition make some hay of this? Is there any room for them to do that? I don't think this is what they hoped to be attacking well, it's interesting. You know, Brian Jean said, well, you know, he's disappointed it took them so long to come up with this. And you think, well, really, it's not that long that it took them. They did it really very, very quickly when they took office. I didn't think that there was a lot of traction to be had there. You know, and he said, oh, you know, he feels sorry for all the people who lost their jobs because of all the months of uncertainty about royalty rates. And I thought, oh, come on. I mean, people have certainly lost jobs, but it's not, you know, Men have died and worms have eaten them, but not for love. Uh, I mean, people have lost their jobs, but it's not something that you can tie in a very, you know, tight line to the seven-month lag. In It's not even a seven-month lag. That's not even a fair thing to call it. Um, I mean, I think in some ways, uh, Notley is, deserves credit for getting this on and off the table uh, within the first six months. Well, I think, and I haven't heard the reaction from the PCs, but mm. I believe what they're saying is, hey, this was a complete waste of time. You had our royalty review back in 2007. Some of the rates were changed 2010. And now we're getting another report that basically says the same thing. And I think the PCs are coming out and saying, this was a waste of money. Why did you do all of this? And you came up to the same result that we had. Well, Gary, you wrote in your column that smaller firms are... The business spending from smaller firms mm -hmm. is expected to crater by 27% this year. Uh, and it's pretty hard to find any kind of positive indicator in the economy. Uh, was the uncertainty of a royalty review ill-advised now? Do you think this was all something for nothing? No. Um, I think uh, Notley made a commitment during the campaign. She fulfilled her commitment today. <clears throat> I think it was, um, in a nutshell, uh, realism and pragmatism trumping ideology today. 
The broader context, as we all know, is that the oil industry is basically fighting for its life in this province. Um, as uh, the Premier mentioned in her press conference today, our biggest customer is now our biggest competitor. They don't have a carbon tax. They're not interested in climate tests on new pipelines. They build new pipelines every month. Uh, there's a $4 billion pipeline that is in the process of uh, regulatory approval from the Bakken to Illinois. Uh, you barely hear a peep about it in Canada. We don't, or, uh, or in America. I mean, you know, yeah. so where were the people who were so angry about Keystone? They're not angry about moving the Bakken oil, which is every yeah. bit is quote-unquote dirty? Absolutely, and we're competing with Mexico. Uh, they're shipping uh, what's called Mayan crude. It's uh, comparable to our benchmark crude here in Alberta to refineries on the Texas coast. Again, uh, no issue around climate tests or carbon taxes down there. So I think she's recognizing the, the reality of the world that we now find ourselves in, and uh, I think the industry will be be happy that this is behind them. Uh, they're not going to be holding any parades with oil at 33 bucks a barrel today. Uh, but uh, I think this is one step in the right direction, and I personally, as the evil pro-capitalist in the group here today, <laughs> I applaud. I think she made the right decision at the right time. Gary, can I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. I know that sure. the last time the Royalty Review came out, back in 2007, the markets really took a drop mm -hmm. uh, suddenly as soon as it was announced. And I'm wondering if you take... Did you notice after the 11 o'clock announcement with Rachel Notley, what happened on the market? You know, that's a, that is a good question. I did check. Uh, oil prices are up from the bottom. The bottom was about 26 bucks and change, I think, about a week or 10 days ago, up to $33 plus today. Uh, oil stocks have had a good little run here from the bottom. Um, that There wasn't big movement today because I think the, the market actually was kind of expecting this. Um, I'm not suggesting that there were any leaks or anything like that, but I think based on the tenor of all the discussion that's happened in the press and outside of it in recent weeks, I think there would have been shock if there was radical change today. So this is pretty much a status quo kind of report, I think. There will be some tweaking. I mean, uh, one of the things that Moet has talked about is um, uh, calibrating costs, I think, year to year, using some sort of benchmark of industry costs that reflect changing dynamics in the industry as costs go up and down with the economy and with inflation. Uh, and that's a good thing. One of the things, too, uh, I think uh, that they're going to look at more closely is uh, producers in the oil sands uh, running up costs to defer the date of payout. You know, I mean, not that this is kind of a widespread practice or anything like that, but there were significant cost overruns in the last cycle to the tune of multi-billions of dollars that deferred the ultimate payout on these projects because you're not paying back until you've recovered your capital costs. So I think uh, there will be closer attention paid to that. They also talked about more transparency, uh, more information available to the public on a website of some sort, and an innovation agenda that we're not, we haven't heard anything about yet, but that's on the come. So I think there's some good signs. Uh, you know, it remains to be seen what the details are, but I think they're going in the right direction, personally. And, and I think that transparency is really important because when people, it's easy for the PCs to say, oh, well, you see, we, we, we had everything fine. But how could we tell that they had everything fine? If you can set up a system mm -hmm. that lay people as well as industry people can actually see how the royalties are working and to make sure that even if we're not changing the rate, that we're actually capturing all of the value. I mean, this is something that Auditor General's reports have flagged again and again and again and said it's not just a question of the rates. It's a question of making sure that you're collecting what you're actually owed. Because it's not, you know, you can move the rates up and down. If people don't actually remit the money that they owe you, 
the rate doesn't matter. So I think that is crucially important that we have a system that allows us to track what we're actually supposed to be taking in. And just to follow up on something that Gary said, he talked about that there were some projects that had huge cost overruns so that they weren't paying royalty rates because they have to get back their capital costs before they start paying rates. Well, in with this new framework, they are encouraging the reduction of costs in industry. So if industry can actually get their costs down in building those projects, they, the government is going to set a new sort of average cost. How much, on average, would it cost to set up that kind of uh, that kind of project? Then they would be based. Their royalty rates would be based on that average cost. Then industries that go over are not going to be incentivized. They won't be able to take in more money from royalties. It's a bit hard to explain, but basically they're hoping that this whole program will drive down costs for industry because it's based on costs now, not on barrels of oil. That's that's exactly right, and that's the message I think Moet's trying to deliver here is that we're in a new world. We're not on $100 oil. We're probably not going back to $100 oil anytime soon. So it's about getting more value out of each barrel, and to do that, both in terms of royalties and taxes and overall benefit to the economy here. you got to get your costs down. you got to compete. Um, and as we know, a lot of the oil sands uh, production today is not competitive, certainly at 33 bucks a barrel. So this is what the economy is based on here. And uh, if we want to go forward with this economy and sustain it, we got to figure out how to make it more efficient. And I think, you know, I said at the very beginning that it's possible that Notley will get pushback from true believers who feel that they've been denied their chance to sort of get their fair share. But I think everybody in Alberta is feeling pretty darned pragmatic right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think everybody knows that this is a time that it would have been madness to try and jack up royalty rates. Uh, And I think probably there are enough NDP, you know, base supporters who work in blue collar jobs, who work in the oil patch, who understand that this is about everybody's livelihood and that this is, you know, this is not the time to be splaying the golden goose. Well, I've, my dad, actually, who's a man from Halifax, born in Glasgow, came up in the unions on the shipyard in Glasgow, mm-hmm. very left wing, but he's now working in Fort Hills, Alberta. And it's really funny to watch him on Facebook sharing things like, share this if you rely on Alberta oil for your livelihood. And <laughs> it's a real big change in his mindset. It's, it's just kind of funny to watch. Well, I think um, it's a really important thing to know because when people outside of Alberta were so nonplussed that we elected a majority NDP government, yeah. NDP in Alberta does not mean the same thing as NDP in BC or NDP in Ontario or NDP in Manitoba. I mean, uh, in Saskatchewan and Alberta, there's always been that blue-collar labor pragmatism that has underlined the party. And I think that that part of Rachel Notley's base has got to be happy with what happened today. And speaking of pragmatism, energy wonk Andrew Leach tweeted something during the speech that I thought was interesting, and I will read it to you. Uh, The transparency and benchmarking on oil sands costs is crucial. It likely telegraphs how eye-opening seeing the actual data was for the government. And I thought that was a great point that we can we can talk about everything Rachel Notley said during the election, but they didn't see a lot of that stuff, and now they're allowing people to see it. Do you think that's a big move, and do you think that is actually what happened here, is that they saw the numbers and they were a little bit taken aback? Oh, I think that was part of it. And I think also, you know, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Bill 6, I said rhetorically, did they learn nothing from watching what happened to Ed Stelmack when he tried to change, you know, regulations about land use and farmers? Uh, I think they did remember what happened to Ed Stelmack in 2007 because, you know, Jody's right to reference the Our Fair Share Royalty Review. In 2007, the, the rhetoric in that report was much stronger 
much more about saying that we were getting ripped off and that well, we and needed to have our fair share. And and that came back. And I mean, that cost Ed Stelmack the premiership. What's well, interesting, too, when I was speaking with uh, Graham Thompson, the columnist from uh, he's at the legislature right now, he was saying you could take these two reports and switch them. And that's more what he would have thought. He thought that the previous royalty regime would have come from the ND- N- NDP government, and this one would come from the PC government, uh, stay the same. And I thought that was an interesting comment. And what, what that speaks to, I think, is just, again, the fact that we are in a different different era now. I mean, the era we were in in 2007, 2008 was a completely different world. You know, at $100. In fact, we were heading to $147 a barrel oil in June of 2008, and it seems unfathomable right now. Uh, so different planet, people, the goalposts were in a completely different place than they are today. Today it's about survival. Uh, that's really what it's about. And, um, I mean, w- not for everyone. There are some companies that are that are okay. Companies like Suncor are going to do just fine because they're integrated. But so a lot of companies fighting for survival, and there will be bankruptcies here in the next few months. It's uh, a sobering time for a lot and of companies. And Rachel Notley said the same thing. She said it's not just a different world from 2007. It's a different world from eight months ago when she mm. was fighting to become government. She said it's right. – and that, you know, she was running on – we need more royalty – royalty rates to go up and now she's changed her tune she said it's a different world you can't base uh policy on on eight months ago well the other thing she learned from ed stelmack i mean one of the things i have to say i really admired about stelmack at the time because i was the legislature columnist when the our fair share report came out um uh they put everybody in the lockup with the report at the same time that the government got it so you know the the government found out what was in the report at about the same time that all the media did. Hmm. Uh, And the idea was to be totally transparent that they weren't going to hold back reports the way the Klein government had that we'd all find out together. And of course, uh, the Stelmat government ended up sideswiped because they had not anticipated the really strong rhetoric in that report. This time, the message was much more carefully managed. Uh, And I think that... uh, that was a political lesson that the NDP learned from from Stelmack's tactical errors. In terms of information, one thing that I would like to see, and it could be in this 200-plus page document, I haven't gone through it, uh, and there's a lot of graphs that are really, I I won't understand them, but I would like to see, back in 2007, I believe that royalty review suggested that we were behind other jurisdictions and that other jurisdictions were actually getting more of their royalties than Canada was, or sorry, than Alberta was. This time, they say we're average, middle of the pack. And I'm curious whether or not we are comparing the same jurisdictions or if Mm -hmm. things have changed. I would like to see that comparison to see how we could have gone from not getting our fair share to we're about average and we're doing well. That's a good point. And I I think, too, uh, uh, Moat referenced something else about uh, geology, this being the most complex geology. Of, uh, of of all the oil basins, with the possible exception of Venezuela, and uh, I think what he's speaking to there is, you know, the fact that we have a low-grade resource in a remote place that takes a lot of upgrading to turn into an actual product, and you got to get it there uh, to market. So there are a lot of complexities around royalties. It's not just about a rate; it's about the quality of the product you got. It's about how far it is from markets. Mm-hmm. It's about transportation costs, and it's. It's also about what are you focusing on? Are you focusing on driving activity, i.e. job creation? Or is it about getting the biggest pound of flesh you can out of something that may not have a 30 or 40 or 50 year, li- year lifespan as our resource does? And certainly not late today. I mean, her words today weren't just about the royalty review. They were about pipelines. They were about job creation. I mean, she was positioning herself today as, as a champion of the industry. And 
again, I mean, it's pretty much muted. The, well, to the extent that one can mute the criticism on the right. Uh, I mean, there are people who are going to be angry no matter what. And today they'll just be angry that they don't have as much to be angry about. But I think she finessed this. Now this is off the table. And now they can look ahead at the much, much harder task of figuring out what's going in that budget. And next week, Prime Minister Trudeau will visit both Edmonton and Calgary. And Rachel Notley said she will definitely be talking pro-pipeline. That is one of her main goals. So she'll be talking about this specifically with him. Well, looking ahead, uh, Dave Mowat said he he was joking that unfortunately they haven't found a way to affect the price of oil. Uh, It was a joke, but isn't that the big issue here? And Gary, maybe you can take a swipe at this one. Is there any light at the end of the tunnel for energy industry workers? Oh, there is. Uh, I mean, it wouldn't be visible day to day right now, the way people are feeling and and given the amount of pain that that has been inflicted on the oil patch in the last year and a half. But these are cycles. We have to remember this. This is a cyclical commodity. It goes up and down. I was at a presentation a few months ago. uh, Frank Mersch, he's a well-known investor in Canada, been around for, for decades. And I think he counted up something like six or eight times in the last 30 odd years where prices of oil, the price of oil has fallen by 50% or more. So this is like not unprecedented. Mm-hmm. It's terrible when it happens, but it's not unprecedented. And what happens is, um, you know, the, the supply begins to gradually decline as we're seeing in the U.S. Demand continues to go up, believe it or not. Everybody talks about, you know, switching to renewables next week. Not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this uh, the energy industry is the, the biggest, most complex infrastructure in the world. Uh, And so slowly, gradually, demand goes up a million, two million barrels a day, and supply will come down. The Saudis are pumping like crazy. That can't go on forever. They're running $90 billion deficits a year over there. It's unfathomable to most people. And they will feel pain. They are feeling pain now. And uh, so this will end. I don't know when. I don't know when the price will get back to some sustainable level. But we're in the process of bottoming, I would say, if we have not already passed the bottom. You know, there's Iranian oil that's maybe going to come back onto the markets because, the, yeah. you know, the Iranian oil has been pretty much shut in by sanctions. Mm-hmm. So that could lower prices. On the other hand, if all hell continues to break loose with ISIS, uh, and goodness knows what happens in Iraq. I mean, everything is the product of geopolitical factors that are so beyond the control of Justin Trudeau or Rachel Notley or Barack Obama or Donald Trump. Uh, if we could prognosticate what the price of oil would be six months out, we'd be very super rich and we wouldn't have to be here in the podcast studio with mm. you. <laughs> as fun as that is. <laughs> Uh, so I guess on that, this pragmatism we keep seeing, uh, this week we saw no less than Rick Mercer in a rant that I might call Lamfarian Ooh. taking a swing at Denis Coderre for his opposition to the Energy East pipeline. Uh, Mercer urged the provinces to ask, what's in it for Canada, not what's in it for me? Uh, are you guys surprised to hear an argument like this from Upper Canada? And uh, do you think it means mindsets are changing over oh, there? I think Rick Mercer would be very hurt if he heard you said he came from Upper Canada. <laughs> yeah, He's yeah. from Newfoundland. Uh, he filmed it in Upper Canada. <laughs> <laughs> I and not, and not Lower Canada? Quebec is Lower Canada. I think he was in Toronto. All right. Okay, then it's Upper Canada. We'll do some podcast fact-checking. I, I, <laughs> I will stop making fun of you. I thought you were going to say he'd be very hurt if he was compared to some schmuck like Lamphere. <laughs> <laughs> That's another subject for another day, I guess. Uh, I was trying to honor him there. <laughs> I, I, no, but I, do, I thought it's funny, right? I mean, we talk a lot about uh, you know John Stewart and, and Stephen Colbert in the United States, but in some ways Rick Mercer is is in some version Canada's figure like that. And I think it does matter when someone like Rick Mercer, who's a progressive hipster, comes out in favor of the Energy East pipeline. Uh, I, I 
thought it was fascinating. But of course, there are there are jobs for Atlantic Canada in Energy East, uh, and there are jobs, frankly, in Quebec uh, for en- you know that Energy East would create. So it's intriguing to see a pop cult figure like Mercer uh, using his his celebrity and his clout to advocate for a pipeline which is not necessarily going to be popular with his own uh, hipster base. I, I think it's I think it's fascinating. There are a few thoughtful uh, voices out there in central Canada that see the significance of the energy industry and the vital importance of getting this pipeline uh, logjam broken. Uh, Jeff Simpson, the columnist in the Globe and Mail, for instance, who's not really renowned as a great fan of the energy industry in Alberta, has been uh, out quite outspoken actually in his uh, in his view that the pipelines are essential that we can't dilly-dally forever consulting every lobby group, interest group on the ground in the country before we get the green light to build these things. The rest of the world doesn't wait for us. Uh, Other countries are gladly filling the gap left uh, uh, by the lack of Canadian crude that's flowing down to the Gulf. In fact, Iraq has record oil production. It's hard to believe. A war-torn country like Iraq, they're uh, producing over 4 million barrels a day, shipping it to the U.S. Gulf Coast. That should be Canadian oil that's flowing down there. But they're allowed to fill the gap. Thank you very much, Canada. As long as you guys keep squabbling about oil pipelines, we'll uh, tackle that market. So um, it, it's good to see people like Jeff Simpson, John Iveson in the Post uh, talking about the need for pipelines. We need pragmatism here. Uh, Ideology is great when you can afford it. We can't afford it. we got to get on with life here. Uh, so now it's time for good stuff from the gallery. Each week we each share something we've enjoyed often, but not always with a political connection. And we'll start with uh, Jody. So I have sort of more of a three stories, two of which would be worth reading, uh, that sort of give a context for um, issues faces, facing Indigenous people. So of course we were all rocked by the Laloche tragedy last Friday when uh, a gunman went in and uh, killed four people in a small isolated community in northern Saskatchewan. Uh, Jason Markasoff first wrote a really great piece uh, explaining what that community is like and all the issues facing it. Uh, And then more recently, Scott Gilmore, who is a member of the Conservative Party, but he also is married to the Environment Minister, McKenna, which is kind of interesting. He wrote an interesting piece about whether or not we should encourage Indigenous people and other people living in isolated isolated communities to move into areas that are have more services where they would do better it's uh kind of edgy uh i don't know if people are going to necessarily like it talking about do we need reserves do we not need reserves but i think it's an interesting topic about how isolation um can affect communities and then the third thing is i reported earlier this week about the canadian human rights tribunal about how first nation reserves are getting less money for social services than uh, treating indigenous kids off of reserves and it's all sort of tied in about how uh, indigenous people are they're not given the same kind of rights and access to services that they need and i think that whole that whole topic is a really important one to look at right now Paul? Uh, I have a, a very different and perhaps somewhat lighter thing. Uh, this is Adam Gopnik in The New Yorker, wrote a very funny essay called France, Iran, and the Affair of the Lunch Wine about the great diplomatic brouhaha that emerged in Paris when uh, the Iranians refused to have wine 
served at the lunch table. The French were willing to meet their demand for halal meat, but not to have lunch without wine. Uh, Gopnik's very funny in what he describes as uh, reporting from the ooh-la-la school of French reportage. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, he's a Francophile from way back, and it's, it's a delightful read about a serious and important topic. And Gary? Well, I'm sort of reluctant to, to talk about this because it's a very dense academic paper that very few people would <laughs> relate to, but it's a book on Gordy Howe, my hero, <laughs> called Mr. Hockey and Autobiography. And uh, Gordy really is my hero. I mean, I, I think the guy's an amazing human being. He's uh, in, well into his 80s now. He's p- quite debilitated, and um, uh, you know, but he's had an amazing life. Uh, he's an amazing human being, had an amazing hockey career. I grew up in Windsor, Ontario. I got to see Gordy in the 60s and 70s when he was still playing for the Wings, and I actually got to play in front of Gordy once, believe it or not. When I was a high school kid, uh, our team played at the old Olympia Stadium in Detroit, and the team we played against was coached by Ted Lindsay, who used to be Gordy's line mate, and it was on a Sunday morning quite early, and nobody in the building, 16,000 seats, and about halfway through the second period, we felt this sort of rough rustling of seats behind us, and we turned around, and who was there but Gordy and his two kids, Mark and Marty, because Mark and Marty played for the junior wings, and they practiced actually after we got off the ice. So it was quite uh, a thrill for us, and uh, Gordy's always been my hero, and he still is. Well, I can't top that, but my good stuff from the gallery this week comes from the New York Times, and it's about what happens when charisma fades. The headline reads, It's still Bill Clinton, but the old magic seems to be missing. Previous episodes of the Press Gallery are at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion or in the Edmonton Journal's SoundCloud feed. The show pops up most Friday afternoons and can be retrieved via iTunes. Tune in radio and the Edmonton Journal website. We're all on Twitter. You should also check out the Journal's Facebook page. Thank you, Jody, Paula, and Gary for joining me in the newsroom studio. That's all for now from the Press Gallery. Thanks for listening.